Listen as I read the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was one man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to our lives. Father in heaven, whether this is a a new text for us to study and hear, or it's one that we have read since childhood, I pray that by the work of your spirit, your living word would change our hearts even now, that we would see in this gospel message the true words of life and hope. Lord, we thank you on this weekend in which we celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy as a country. Lord, the freedom we have to gather in worship, to announce gospel hope to our neighbors, to share with joy that which we believe. Lord, we We pray this weekend for those who have been placed in charge of us, those who lead and guide and govern. We pray for our governor here in Delaware and the governors of our surrounding states. We pray for our president and the leaders in Washington. Lord, that you would give wisdom and guidance. Lord, that you would restrain sin where it threatens to run rampant and that you would help us as your people to pursue righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you that the hope of the gospel is for all of the nations, that in you there is found true freedom, the forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, we would find your word to be true, that we would find it to meet our deepest needs. And so we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Some of the places mentioned in the Bible that you can visit today provide backdrops to make it easy to understand the biblical story. The Valley of Elah reminds much as we'd expect, even after thousands of years. It's easy to imagine the armies of the Philistines camped on one hill and the Israelites camped on the other, the evil giant Goliath coming down to challenge the people because 
you can see the hills and the flat valley still today. Some of the places you visit are so filled with subsequent buildings with, with other architecture that it's hard to strip away the centuries in your mind. It's hard to imagine what it would really have looked like. The historic walls of Jerusalem that you see on the, the covers of the travel brochures, well, they're not in the same place they were at the time of Jesus. Today, they show us the extent of Ottoman power. Some of the places you visit have had those layers then peeled back by archaeologists so that you can get a glimpse of what it looked like. To let you return with Jesus and his disciples to the pages of Scripture. The pool of Bethesda has been fully excavated. But my visit initially made the story harder to imagine. Maybe because I was picturing it all wrong initially. This is a pool where the, those who have been blinded, those who are lame, or those who have been paralyzed gather at the water's edge, hoping for healing. And yet, when you look into the depth of the pool, you fear for their lives. These pools are more than 50 feet deep. These are reservoirs for the city of Jerusalem. The ancient aqueducts bringing water from the, the hills even as far away as Bethlehem to the south. This is not a place where you imagine people slipping gently in where, those, where it would seem safe for those who are weak or sick. This is not a zero-entry kiddie pool. Now, there's a mention in our passage of steps, and so it, perhaps in the ancient world there were steps to allow easier access to the edges of the pool. Or maybe there were water installations, which we see from, from later Roman times, where people expected that there were, were supernatural opportunities for healing. But the pool of Bethesda is a place of desperation. I mean, to walk through, even as a visitor, Jesus is there for a feast. We don't know which of the feasts. It's the only time in John's gospel he doesn't actually tell us exactly which feast, because well, in the other times, it, it matters because Jesus draws on the analogy of what's happening around them. Here, it's just the reason that we're back in Jerusalem. But even if you were just passing through on your way to the feast, to just see the crowds gathered here would be a sad and horrifying sight, a place of desperation. Perhaps they're hoping some mysterious healing power is available. And yet it's here that we see the ministry of Jesus. Jesus finds a man who needs help. Jesus initiates this miracle. The, the other miracles we've seen, it's his mother who comes and begs him to do something in Cana. A, a desperate father comes pleading for his child. But here, Jesus initiates the miracle. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw the man lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time. How long? Well, verse 5 told us the man had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, perhaps not here at this pool every day. Perhaps he only came for certain seasons or at the time of the feast when there would be crowds who could, who could throw a few coins his way while he, while he waited in, in desperate hope that a miracle might take place. 
But, it, but as, we, as we see the scene unfold, we're, we're, given, we're given details, details which show us John himself, the writer of this gospel, was an eyewitness. Look back at the description, not just the, the names of the place, which we're not exactly sure where the sheep gate was, because remember the walls aren't in the same place as they were 2,000 years ago. But, but John says that this pool is called in Aramaic Bethesda, and it has five roofed colonnades. Now, that specific detail has had commentators through the centuries trying to figure out maybe there's some symbolic value. I, I don't think so. I think it's just that John, in picturing the scene, remembers there were five colonnades, five rows of columns that were covered with a roof where the people would gather. And yet that detail that there are five has led skeptics through the centuries to say, that doesn't make any sense. How many sides does a trapezoidal pool have? It has four. I mean, it's supposed to be a square, but it's a little bit wider at one end than the other. But it has four sides. So how many colonnades, if you count them, you'd have one on each side. You should have only four colonnades. See, this is just one of those examples where the Bible is just a made-up fairy tale and nobody knows the real truth. And yet, when the excavations took place, how many colonnades did they find? Well, they found five. They found one around each side, as you and I would expect, but then through the middle, really cutting the pool in half, two pools was a fifth colonnade because the bedrock had risen so much they decided rather than dig that all the way out, they would just put another colonnade down the middle. And so the five colonnades actually remind us, centuries later, that John stood here and watched this miracle happen. Now, look back with me at verse 4. All right, verse 4. All right, is it in your Bible? It's not in mine. My Bible goes from John chapter 5, verse 3, to John chapter 5, verse 5. What in the world happened to verse 4? Somebody shook it loose and it's gone. Now, in some of your Bibles, it's just fallen to the very bottom of the page as a footnote. It's a detail that is pretty clear to us today was a scribal addition, probably even initially given as, a, as an intended footnote, maybe, maybe written into the margins of the, the manuscript itself. An explanation that the, the scribe is trying to say, well, why would somebody be waiting here by this pool? Oh, because there's this legend that an angel would come down and stir up the waters, and at that moment, you could be healed. And so what is initially a, just a scribal addition, an explanation, probably a, a rumor that this scribe had heard, gets picked up by later scribes as, oh, it looks like he skipped verse 4. I should put that back in line. And so verse 4 gets that. Because remember, John didn't put the chapter in verse titles. I mean, those didn't come until 1,000 years later. So there never really was a verse 4. And, and it's clear from all of the manuscripts that we have that verse 4 was added. Now you might think, well then, I mean, isn't this just evidence? The lost Bible verse of John chapter 5, and this isn't the only lost Bible verse. There are many that have been removed because more manuscript evidence shows us it wasn't originally written by John. So you might think, well, that, should, that just it undermines my trust in the Bible. Actually, I think it should work the other way. The very fact that ancient scribes could make an error, well, that shouldn't surprise us when we know just something about the little mistakes that we can make. The fact that an ancient scribe would make an error that then God preserved other manuscripts, older manuscripts, that scholars have been able to go back and read and say, oh, well, when I read the, the Greek of 
John chapter 5, in all of these other manuscripts, these thousands of manuscripts, some of which go back to just decades after John first wrote this down, it's clear that that verse was just an addition. And actually, it's, it's a really surprisingly small amount of the Bible that, that we would have this kind of question about. And not in one of these places is any uh, significant theological doctrine undermined. It's this kind of little narrow detail about, oh, well, that's why they gathered here. Or it's the flipping of, of two letters in a word that then changes the meaning of the word, but it just moves the, the verb from the present to the past tense. It, it doesn't undermine the, the, the trustworthiness. Actually, compared to any other book you'd pick up from really almost any time, and even a book printed in 2021, you have much greater confidence that what is written here is what the author himself, John, intended you and I to understand. Even a missing verse gives us confidence that we're hearing the truth from an eyewitness. Now, Jesus, when he finds the, the man lying there, he knows he's been there a long time. Jesus understands this because of his supernatural insight into the man. Look at verse 6. He says to him, do you want to be healed? Now, part of us wants to say, well, duh, that's why I'm here. I mean, part of us wants to say, Jesus, what kind of question is that? The man has been lying here. You know he's been lying here a long time. But, but Jesus is initiating the conversation. Jesus is, is, is making clear what's about to happen. He's kind of stopping his disciples. He's engaging this man who has laid there, who has been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus, in, in, in asking the man a question, then, then here's the response of verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. See, the man is just hoping, if we see the water, could you, could you just sit with me a little while? And if we see the water stirred up, drag me quickly to the edge and dump me in. Like, he's just looking for a little bit of help. He's not expecting a miracle. I mean, it's clear from that. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. I mean, he's clearly some kind of teacher. He's got this group of people following him around. But he's, he, he, the, the, the man who's there, who's described to us as a sick man or, or a man who is, who is an invalid, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't expect a miracle. He just wants a little bit of help. And yet Jesus, in, in choosing this man, initiates the miracle. Look at verse 8. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And what happens? Now, again, you already heard me read it, but even before I read it, you sort of, just in having read the beginning of the Gospel of John, anticipated what would happen. But so that we understand how unexpected this is, look at the way verse 9 begins. And at once the man was healed. Immediately upon the words of Jesus, the man is healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Jesus has power and authority to heal the man. This man who, who, is, who has been longing for help, a man who has been waiting for so many years, a man who is desperate. And perhaps you feel that kind of desperation in your life. You feel like you've waited a long time. You've suffered through much and you wonder if God is even listening. Counselor Mike Emlett describes the hope and help that Jesus offers. He introduces us to Ruth, 
a 72-year-old woman who lost her husband 10 months ago after a prolonged decline with early-onset Alzheimer's disease, which had been diagnosed in her husband eight years before. Ruth cared for her husband through all of those years, and the the final three years were were years of, of desperate suffering. They were especially grueling for her as a caregiver. After such a lengthy season of suffering, she shared with her counselor, it's been a difficult journey, and I'm so weary. I feel like I've run a marathon and survived, but I worry that God will ask me to run another marathon. I'm not sure I have the strength to run it. Will God throw me another curveball that this time I won't be able to hit? Perhaps you feel like you're at the end of a long struggle. Years of pain. Years of loneliness. Decades of crying out to God for help. And you fear that even if you were to find help now, you're just going to need more help tomorrow. That even if you can get through today, that, that doesn't feel like it would be enough. But it's here in our moments of desperation that Jesus seeks us out. When we feel like we have nowhere else to turn, there is no one who can even help us a few feet to the water's edge. Jesus is the one who came seeking out the needy. Jesus who came to help the desperate. The healing of this man is a complete healing, a miraculous healing. But Jesus offers offers us the hope of eternal life, of new life, of new creation through his life and death. So we have the ministry of Jesus, but then then we see the mess that comes from the the miracle. Jesus, in in verse 8, told the man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now why the the detail about the bed, about this likely a straw mat that the man rolls or or folds up and, and, and could easily carry away? Well, it shows us the complete healing of the man. He has the strength to get up, to carry this mat, and walk away. Perhaps Jesus is is making the point to him, it's time to go. You don't need to hang around the pools of Bethesda anymore. You don't have to come back here because the healing you needed wasn't in the place, it was in me. So get your mat and get out of here. You are fully healed. But it might be that Jesus is actually provoking the religious authorities. Because what do we find out at the, at the end of verse 9? After the man took up his bed and walked, we find out now that day was the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, the day on which you were called to rest. The Jewish religious leaders had come up with 39 rules for you to keep the Sabbath so that you could obey God's commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, the final rule actually prohibited carrying something from one place to another. You could pick up something as long as you kept it in the same place. But to take it from one room to another would be wrong. To take it from one place to another would be wrong. And so Jesus explicitly tells this man, take up your mat and walk. Jesus is telling the man to break this man-made religious rule that has been added to the law of God. 
And it's this breaking of the Sabbath that, that causes the mess. When the, when the man, who, who I love how he's described then in the rest of the passage, look with me. Look with me the, in, in verse 10. So the Jews, I mean, so the religious leaders, the ones who had made up these rules, they said to the man who had been healed. Later, it's, it's another word, but it, we could translate it the same way. The man who had been cured, the man who had been healed. His whole identity has been changed. He's not, not an invalid lying, waiting for hope. He is the man who had been healed. But they say to him, it's the Sabbath, in verse 10, and so it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, the man quickly passes the, the blame to Jesus, which is the exact place that it actually should go in this instance. He's the one, the, the one who healed me, the one who had been healed says about the one who healed him. Again, John is just pointing out to us again that, that the, there's a miracle that's taken place, but the religious leaders only see their own rule being broken. They're ignoring the miracle entirely. They say that you've broken a commandment. And so he places the blame on Jesus. And Jesus, at the end of this passage, it, knowing that, that this is the, the persecution which will ultimately lead to their death, look at what Jesus says to them in verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now again, it sounds a little like an enigmatic statement. What is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus has, has actually just jumped right into the middle of a debate that's happening in the first century. Oh, wait. God created heaven and earth in, in six days, and then God rested on the Sabbath, but, but does God ever do any work on the Sabbath? Does God uphold and sustain the universe even on the Sabbath day? Well, of course, the answer to that question is yes. The universe doesn't exist without God's ongoing power. And so they, they have to reach the conclusion, well, then it looks like God himself is allowed to work on the Sabbath. God isn't bound by the Sabbath law like you and I are bound by the Sabbath law. Now, some of them actually tried to get, reach the conclusion, well, to be fair, God actually isn't taking one thing from one place to another since God is everywhere and he owns the whole universe. So he hasn't actually gone anywhere. I mean, they, they, they like wrap themselves in circles and, and tie themselves in knots trying to, 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 to answer this kind of question. But what's clear in their debate is God himself has to work even on the Sabbath day because without his power, you and I would be lost. And so what does Jesus do? He just jumps into the middle of the fray and says, God works on the Sabbath. I work on the Sabbath. Now this is a pretty big and bold claim. Jesus is saying that God and God alone is allowed to work on the Sabbath, but that's exactly who I am. Jesus can, can break their rules because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is God himself he is the one who has all power and authority. And so it's here that we begin to see the mission of Jesus. We've seen the, the, the ministry, the miracle. We've seen the mess that's created. But we, but we, in this passage, see the mission of Jesus as well. That this is the reason that they begin to persecute him, that, they will lead, that this will lead to his death, this kind of, of opposition to their man-made rules. But notice also how, how Jesus goes and seeks out the man again. After the, the mess has started. We see here the mission of Jesus. Look again at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus' mission is not just so this man can get up and walk. 
It's not merely to, to, to prove that he is Lord of the Sabbath. It's to forgive sins, to transform lives. Now here, he's explicitly telling the man, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you, which, which implies, and, it, and this might be exactly what Jesus is trying to say, your previous pain and suffering was a result of your direct sin. Now, now you have to listen carefully. There, that is not a universal truth that if you have suffered, you can trace the line back to your own sin. Yes, suffering can always be traced back to sin, but often it's the sin of other people. Or we'd even go back further to the sin of, of Adam and, and Eve and, and the initial rebellion of humanity against God. Because Jesus will make that explicit, that, that just to, to be one who has suffered a long time isn't because you sinned. In, in, in chapter 9 of John's Gospel, we meet a man who we're told was born blind. And so Jesus' disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're working from the assumption that suffering, like being born blind, leads to someone's personal sin. So who sinned? The infant or the parents? And Jesus answers in John chapter 9, verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And when we get there, you can, you can anticipate what Jesus is going to do to show the works of God in this man's life. And so Jesus makes clear, you can't go from every point of suffering and trace it back to your own individual sin, but it seems that sometimes you can. For our, our man who has been healed in John chapter 5, it seems that Jesus is saying, actually, be careful going forward, because sometimes sin, your sin, leads to your suffering. And so Jesus is the one who has power over sickness, he brings relief to the suffering. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. He alone can act miraculously. And Jesus also has the power to forgive sins. Not merely in his words challenging this man, any one of us could say to someone, sin no more. And we might even, with our, with our, our wise, persuasive words, give them reasons to, to change their lives. But, but you and I don't have the strength in ourselves to actually empower the kind of change that we need to turn away from sin. But Jesus does. Jesus has the power to forgive us of our sins so that we're freed from the guilt of sin. How does he do that? In his death on the cross, he actually takes our sin and pays the full price for them. Jesus has the power in his resurrection to grant us the, the ministry of his spirit so that we're no longer bound by the chains of sin, but we're actually set free to live for righteousness, to serve and love others because of the death and ministry of Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who, who frees us from sin and then speaks to us, sin no more. You and I are empowered to follow Jesus because of his death and resurrection. And perhaps for you, it's been years Years of suffering. Maybe you feel beyond the reach of any kind of help. There's no one left. It's been 38 years. I don't even have somebody who could drag me to the water's edge. But Jesus has come to you today. In the words of this gospel, Jesus looks to initiate a miracle 
to come to you and offer you the, 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 the power and the hope of resurrection life, to offer you the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has sought you out. He has turned toward you in the midst of the crowds to give you this hope of healing, the gift of eternal life, hope in the forgiveness of sins. Let's come to God now in prayer as we come to him at this table. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the ministry of Jesus in the life of the man at the pool in Bethesda, a man who had no other help and no hope left. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of our Savior. Lord, I pray that as we come to your table that we would find the, the power of the gospel to be on full display, that in the, the ministry of Jesus, in his death and resurrection, that we would find true and lasting hope. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.